0: I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Uh, Today's topic and guest uh, have been on the podcast before, but the topic has become kind of superheated over the last several months. and it's interesting we're going to be talking about open ai and generative ai and how it relates to healthcare uh the good the bad the ugly and the crazy so in my research uh, as part of my position i've been reading a lot about open ai and all these other generative you know large language models about what they can do and what they can't do and i found a couple of things out in testing it in in my particular line of work, I found that it's pretty good if you want to write a letter to an insurance company about a certain denial, or you want to give them a synopsis of a a particular medical record or a particular disease. It's not too bad at that. But what's interesting about it is when you start asking it some very detailed questions, either medical or medical coding or anything like that, it has a propensity, if it doesn't know the answer, to make something up. And I found that a couple of times now, which is something absolutely unrelated to what I was asking it, which is a little disturbing when it comes to a clinician and thinking about how they can use this in the future, because the answer that it did give, if you didn't know any better, was pretty good, very convincing, but wrong. So, It'll be interesting to see where this all transpires and goes over the next, you know, years, because I think that's going to take a while for it to actually uh, to get there. But uh, today's guest is an expert in healthcare IT, in natural language processing, and basically artificial intelligence as it pertains to that. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Tim O'Connell, who's a practicing radiologist, and he's the founder of Intelligent. And he and his intelligent team have been working one of the world's first deep learned medical natural language, process, language processing engines. Um, they can take text and convert it into usable data and information. He's also the vice chair of clinical informatics of the Department of Radiology, at the University of British Columbia, which is a beautiful campus, I've seen it. And he also holds a master's degree in engineering and a bachelor of science in neuroscience. I'd like to welcome back Dr. Tim O'Connell to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to see you again.
0: You know, Tim and I have had several conversations over the last, I would say, couple of years now (laughs) regarding some of the issues. But recently, as I just mentioned, OpenAI has opened up what I would call a semi-can of worms when it comes to what generative AI is, how it's used, what it could be, and how it's learned. And I was thinking about this and the thing that came to mind is it's kind of like a third year medical student with a photographic memory who has learned every medical textbook it can get its hands on, consumed all this other information that it can get its hands on, but never seen a patient. It it can't put it together.
1: Interesting, so, very interesting analogy. Yeah, and and it it suffers terribly from the unknown unknown problem, right? That's what yes. differentiates a third year medical student from a 10 year veteran, you know, of, of clinical practice is, you know, what you don't know. And that's honestly where, you know, and and can be very convincing about what it doesn't know.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So at Intelligent, you guys are focusing on unlocking data, good clinical data from free text notes and natural language processing to help facilitate that conversion to usable data downstream. So we can do all the wonderful things we can do with it. But we've had, like I said, clouding of the landscape with Chat GPT, BARD, you name it, it's out there. And there's got to be at least 20 of them now that I have been looking at. So it's kind of interesting. So tell me how your approach at Intelligent is different than what I'm seeing in all these other models.
1: For sure, Jay. So I think, you know, this is potentially a very long conversation, but I'll, I'll try and keep it short, focus on the bullet points. I think the, you know, let's go over the similarities first. The underlying technologies are the same, right? We're, we use large language models. We use transformers. We use human annotation. We use, you know, deep learning, you know, AI, all, all this kind of stuff. We're using the exact same thing. Those companies have really built general purpose things to just have a human interface with text or language or images of the web or something like that. And we've built a medical information extraction system. So, you know, I, I think number one, one of the big differences is we've trained our model specifically on clinical data, right? It's been human annotated by physicians specifically for high precision, right? If it tells you something, very high reliability that it's right. Right. Whereas the large language model vendors and, and generative AI vendors have done unsupervised training of their models on the web and, and Twitter and, and GitHub. Right. And so there's just a, you know, we all know that medical language is not your medical English is not general purpose English. So there's all kinds of specialized terminology and slang and abbreviations and stuff that we've seen that just don't exist in Twitter. You know, number two, I think really security is really paramount as well right? And when you're using all these things, you're sending data off into the cloud, right? To someone who actually has terms of use that may say, oh, we can use this data. And if you send it PHI, you know, you're potentially committing a HIPAA violation. Um, and so, you know, our software runs can run entirely within an organization's IT infrastructure, it can just run on one server or a cluster of servers. Um, so data never has to leave that organization. And 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 really number three, our, our you know, we really use a a once through processing technique. You process a document once or a snippet of text once, and then you can ask our system sort of anything you want about it. Um, whereas these other systems, you might have to, you know, every time you want a different question, it's got to reprocess the text. And that means time and money and delay and all this sort of stuff, right? And we're also deterministic. In other words, if you process one document, you'll get the same answer back both times. Whereas with these generative AI models, there can be quite a bit of non-determinism. In other words, it you may get a different answer every time.
0: Now, tangential to that, uh, using the the PHI comes to mind. I've noticed in Mm -hmm. the literature and some reporting uh, that there are people searching or getting lawsuits for copyright violations when some of these open platforms have used copyrighted material to train their model. Yeah. So what's your comment on that?
1: Absolutely crazy. I mean, I I think the... For these companies to be using copyrighted data, at least in the present legal framework, right? Until, you know, the social contract and governments agree that we can use copyrighted data for other, you know, for this use case, um, I think the law is pretty clear on on that that's not okay, right? And um, you know there are there are certainly concerns about patient consent and use of patient data and and this sort of stuff and there's there's very likely patient data floating around out there on the web that people have not consented to being released publicly and um and if these companies are using it for training that's not okay
0: you know interestingly when i've been doing a lot of testing with some of these platforms i have never used a real patient i have always created some fake Absolutely. Dictated nota from somebody that I remember back in my practice days where I could, you know, make something that's very convincing and use it for testing. So keep that PHI out of it. And there people are exploring that now, which gives me a little bit concern, like it does you. Um,
1: yep. Yeah. And, for- and yeah, we, we only use, you know, for anything that's, you know, a trial or a demo or something like that. You know, synthetic data is the way to go. You know, you and I are, are document generation engines, right? Yep. It's easy for us just to create something based on some amalgam of patients that doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, I calculated one time. I think I've created a hundred thousand notes in my lifetime, my practice oh. lifetime. It's just a massive amount of stuff. <laughs> so let's let's switch a little bit to about to a use case. Um, right now, uh, there's a lot of of buzz out there. There. Our companies creating natural language processing, hang a microphone in the room and you pick up all this stuff and then you're creating something out of that. And out of that, something you've created, you're gonna try to to create a a clinical set of notes slash data. And I put data in quotes. Uh, But they've also, these large medical systems are thinking how they can clinically augment a doctor's thinking process with some of these things, which gives me a little bit of a pause. So I talked a little bit about hallucinations. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and, and your what your experience has been with that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So hallucinations are something that these generative AI models suffer from. Um, and I haven't seen anything in the literature yet um, about a solution for this. Uh, and it's a very serious problem. Um, for example, I was having a conversation with someone at one of the large pharma companies and, and we were talking about this and, you know, and it was a novel and interesting application. And, and so I, I asked one of the generative AI models, I said, hey, does, you know, this drug cause headaches as a side effect? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely. It causes headaches. And I said, Okay, well, can you tell me why you said that? And it said, Oh, I, I actually don't know that it causes headaches. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, you know, it it, 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 these models are unexplainable in in a large way. So a large amount of work is being done into explainability. Like, why did you say that? Where did you get that? What is your reference? Where did where did that come from? Um, and so that's a big difference between what we do and this in the generative AI approach is we are completely explainable and completely deterministic. If we say, oh, you know, the patient had appendicitis, we'll give you the sentence it came from and the character offsets it came from. And, and, you know, was it negated? Was there uncertainty? All all this sort of stuff. Right. And, and so these hallucinations are really just where these models are making stuff up and there's, doesn't seem to be a good way to stop them right now.
0: So right now given given what we just talked about tell me where you think these these systems actually fit in at in present and where you think they might fit in in the future
1: sure i think i think we're going to see i think the the right thing about generative ai is it can make it very easy for humans to interface with machines right and, and i think that's something we all have struggled with like if you know I now have a big chunk of my brain dedicated to using speech recognition software right which I use as a radiologist in dictating reports. Um, and I have to speak in a certain way and I know I have to avoid you know danger phrases that I know it will get wrong and, and all this kind of stuff. So um, I think we some of these generative AI models can be used to improve this human machine interaction, right um and, and I think it can be used. We're looking at seeing how we can use generative AI models to make it easier for our customers to get data out of our system once it's already been extracted with high reliability, right? Like there's, rather than having a human write a SQL query to get at a database, you could use a generative AI model to to do a text to SQL, right? Show me all the patients who had appendicitis last month. Boom, that creates SQL, queries a database, pulls out the information, right? There's all kinds of use cases like this. Um, You know, let alone, we could spend literally all day spitballing about all the clinical use cases of how we could make your day shorter, my day shorter, us doing less repetitive and tedious work about it, right?
0: We actually, in, in our work at MediComp, we have a knowledge base team, obviously, that that works on our index, has created the thing that we use as our clinical engine, um, and we have started using it for queries like that, mm-hmm. but it's always been vetted by the expert yeah. before we ever put it in anywhere. Um, so I think that your approach, my approach, other people's approach, when we talk about clinical applications, we have to really be careful to have that last human step to make sure that what you're getting is what you should be getting Um, as opposed to out there. And it scares me to death when I have, I had patients that would bring in four or five type pages worth of questions and stuff. They got off the internet and everything else. And now they're asking that same question of chat GPT or Bard or somebody else. And now they're coming in, well, this is what they told me I have, and this is what I should do about it. And I'm thinking, hmm, Goodness. that's going to be a very interesting interaction going forward. That
1: That is. Um, yeah, I, you know, Jay, you know, the old adage of trust, but check is is key here. And I think if you're showing information to a human that a generative AI model has extracted from the chart, you need to have side by side, okay, human, if you're going to make a clinical decision based on this thing that the AI model said, you need to be able
0: to back it up. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that training. Because um, one of the things that, that obviously needs to happen, I think, uh, when it comes to this type of technology, is it needs to be well-trained, but it needs to be well-trained on appropriate data, yeah. not like you mentioned before, every conceivable thing you can glean off of. Um, what do you think the best approach to that is? Uh, we've been working together for a long time, having... Your NLP model and intelligent focused at our particular sets of vocabularies uh, here at MediComp. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see that going forward, or how do you think that's going to, to help refine this whole yeah. aspect what, of it, clinical medicine?
1: Yeah. And the, I mean, in the, you know, the NLP literature is a very broad base of scientific literature and research, no different than internal medicine for you or radiology for me or whatever, right? So there's lots of um work that's been done and it's a well-known framework that you can use a large language model to deal with language tasks and nlp and this is what we do and it has to be fine-tuned there's this fine-tuning process that happens afterwards i kind of wish we had a better name for it but um this fine-tuning is a a semi-automated step but it has to be done with human annotated data right and so that's where these this idea of we're going to take a large language model that's been trained on clinical documents, clinical notes, and there's lots of these LLMs which are available, but then having to fine-tune them on human annotated data is the next step, and then you get the output. Um, And so that fine-tuning step is an essential step, and not all fine-tunes are created equal. Right, and so that's where I think, you know, the ability for we have to fine tune things using medicine um, as an ontology um, and medicine annotated data and things like that to be able to extract information from uh, clinical notes with high reliability using your language framework is a is a real win for for our users.
0: You know, it's interesting that the pressure on all the health systems that they have today with things like CQMs and HCCs, and now there's the Medicare starting to ramp up audits uh, of, of notes in the whole Medicare Advantage program. Where do you see what you do, what we do, what AI could do when it comes to that particular aspect? Because that's something that I, almost to a person that I've ever talked to that's a clinician, mm-hmm. says, I don't deal with that. It, I just want that to happen. So don't bug me with HCCs and CQMs and all the other alphabet soup that they've now applied to us as clinicians that we have to comply with. So tell me a little bit your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, first off, I I couldn't agree more. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, physicians have an obligation to their patients to create high quality clinical records, um, and and that should never go away. Um, But the auditing function is not... Is not a role for the physician to do, and and humans will always make mistakes, right? And and we're we're, we're the original wetware, right? So um, where we're going to be able to use these technologies, and where we can use them today, is to replace some of this human effort and to speed up this human effort, right? I think if you're going to come down hard on someone and say no, we're not paying this bill, or this is fraud, or something like this, that ultimately this has to go to a human for review, um, and the question is, is how can we make that process more efficient and better so that we don't have a human reviewer going, I reviewed hundred cases today and 99 of them are useless. Right. Or, um, right. So it's about getting to that thin edge of the wedge and providing high quality data to the human reviewer, who's going to adjudicate something with appropriate peer review, um, and all this sort of thing to m- make sure that, um, we continue to use these audits and codes for appropriate reimbursement and appropriate
0: quality of
1: uh, care oversight, right? The, these are very essential and important functions um, that, that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with.
0: You know, one of the things that I have thought about, I've read about, um, talked to other people about is using the generative AI or an, an open AI type model for research when mm-hmm. it com- comes to clinical entities diseases, certain things like that. One of the things we're doing at is we're using it to actually look, have it gather information for us that we can review. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how that aspect of, of all these open AI type systems will help with clinical research? Because it does have the capability of going through a tremendous amount of information short in a short time frame.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's been something we've been able to do since day one of, of our company, Jay. And so I don't think that's adding on a new capability. So for example, as you know, a lot of research we do is based on chart review, right? You've got a human and and you go, okay, look, we did a keyword search and we found all the patients with gallstones. Here you go, (laughs) researcher, you go through them, right? And so what we can do with really high quality bulk information extraction, which we do with Intellipro and, and with medicine is... Once you can just process as many documents as you want. You got 20 million discharge summaries. Great. Let's process them all, store it all in a database. And then you can start swimming around in the data, right? You can be like, I want to find all the patients who had, you know, uh, hip replacement surgery. And then within one month had a blood clot in their legs. And then within one week had a pulmonary embolism. And that query takes about 10 seconds to perform on a massive database, right? And how many weeks or months would it take to assemble that cohort of patients and chart review? It's crazy. So I, I don't think that OpenAI is gonna change, in, in, or in, I shouldn't call it OpenAI. I don't think that generative AI and, and some of these chat models are going to change that. They may make the user interface somewhat easier to use to assemble very complex queries, um, but we can do this today.
0: I just think that the problem with that particular aspect when we talk about using these large language models and generative AI is the fact that they're not being used very much uh, to help with the query. Because that's the other thing I've noticed when I've been doing my research on this is that it's very good about refining a query. It's sometimes not too good about getting the query. Right. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy of what it can do.
1: Absolutely, and there's so much gold in these records, Jay. Right, like you know, the old days of medicine where you saw 10,000 patients and you found one with the disease and you named it after yourself. Right, those are over. We we need all this big data put together to find the patterns in the data that are are the keys to solving a lot of our health challenges right now.
0: And interestingly, as we head towards more genomic and genetic based medicine where mm-hmm. we are coupling genes with certain diseases or yeah. the aspect that you may be susceptible to a certain disease, it's going to become more and more interesting and useful, I think, as we can get that granular data to, oh, yeah. to be ready to go.
1: I'm um, super excited about the potential for AI in, in understanding genomic data, right? I think there's some obvious dangers there, but um, <laughs> I think that's going to unlock a whole a whole bunch of stuff that we don't currently have visibility into.
0: So tell me, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is a burning issue with, with this particular I mean, generation, I think, generative AI?
1: I, I think you one know, thing healthcare? that I don't think is, is well understood right now is the importance of terminology, right? And, and I think um, using ontologies like medicine to code the data is so, so, so important. Um, that function, right? Because you know how inconsistent humans are. On my first CTKB of the day, I'll call it a kidney stone. And my next one, I'll call it a renal calculus. And I'm just human for doing that, right? But when you use an ontology, those are the same concept, right? But to a generative AI model, they might not be, right? Um, and so um, that's where I think I think a lot of people sort of who aren't necessarily like, you know, ontology nerds for lack of a better term, um, you don't understand the power of these ontologies and knowledge engines like medicine, For being able to reliably and consistently extract information from medical charts. It's it's a foundational technology no less important than transformer models.
0: So these large health systems that we talked about a little bit that are exploring all kinds of things uh, right now regarding this particular large language model and chat model, where do you think they should be focused on their efforts as far as it pertains to healthcare, clinicians, interfacing, Uh, clinician workload.
1: Well, I think it's, I I think the healthcare organizations themselves need to put pressure on the vendors to say, look, you've been selling us the same thing for 40 years. Please come up with something better, right? This is very expensive software we purchased from you. Um, and you know, you and I have had the same experience, Jay, in, in using large software platforms in healthcare, it, and to do one simple thing, it might be 14 clicks. Right, um, we need as humans, we are putting obstacles in front of ourselves to helping our patients. These systems are essential, but they need to be better, right? So I, I think our, I would love for our healthcare organizations to put pressure on the vendors to be like, you know, <laughs> use this stuff now, make it better, however you can, because every time you implement a new, a new use case, whether it's Just being able to do a better search of a patient's chart, or whether it's to do a summarization of a patient's chart, or whatever it is, um, stuff that we can help, we can both help with today. Um, Certainly, a lot of stuff like the amazing, you know, Quip UI you guys that we built to be able to take free text and and put it into structured form. All of that saves people time, right? And and time is the most important thing in life,
0: right? Time and effort, yeah, because sometimes the effort is takes a lot of time, but it's the effort that really starts to get you burned out over time using it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Physician burnout is, is, you know, peaking right now and and who knows how bad it's going to get.
0: A potential uh, client told me they wanted to create something that was, would be delightful for a clinician to use. And wouldn't that be refreshing if that would actually happen?
1: I love that word. Delightful. I would love to have a system at work that created delight, right? That would be very cool. I would I would skip my way into the hospital.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Tim, I asked this question of all my guests. If you had a magic wand and you could wave it as far as healthcare IT and medicine, what and correct something, what would that something be?
1: That's one of those wonderful questions. And I'm trying to buy myself time by complimenting you on what a good question it is. I think If I could fix one thing in the healthcare system today, just one very narrow area, it would be for healthcare IT systems to use NLP technologies like ours to do automated uh, patient history summarization. I think that is a very pressing problem where patients come in to see the doctor and the doctor doesn't know them uh, because they've never seen them before. And if they just had a nicely presented user interface view of that patient's, you know, medications and historical diagnoses and procedures that they could go, oh, Mrs. Smith, it's nice to meet you. Do you mind if I spend one minute reviewing your chart and they can look at it? Um, I think that would solve, that would help further human-human connection. It would help improve the quality of care patients wouldn't feel as disconnected by the doctor and being like, Oh, I've never had my gallbladder out, you know, this, this sort of thing. I I think, you know, while it's a very narrow area, I I think that would be one thing I would, I would like to see solved. I I think that would improve performance. And, you, you know, you might say, Oh, we've got problem lists today, Tim. Well, problem lists are human curated and it's not uncommon to see, okay, you've got diabetes and heart disease on your problem list. And then someone comes in and they're in a wheelchair because they're a double amputee. And you're like, well, this is, I wouldn't have guessed that from reading your problem list. Right. So I think that that, that
0: that's my one wish, Jay. What a great answer. And boy, would that be helpful. Well, Tim, uh, thank you very much uh, for being on the podcast again. I I do appreciate it. I think our listeners do too. If they want to get a hold of you to talk more about what you do uh, with Intelligent or talk about this topic, how would they get a hold of you?
1: they can visit us at www.intelligent.com. We've got an info form on the website where we're easy to get in touch with. So yeah, always happy to, to chat with anyone and, and it's been great chatting with you as well, Jay. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for being on our podcast. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about MediComp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MediCompSys or myself at Doc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.